yo, 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 yo. Welcome to episode number 39 of the Basketball Card Podcast. My name is Adam. Thanks for joining the podcast. Uh, if you don't already follow me on Instagram, you can do so at the Real 27 Guy. And again, welcome for uh, welcome to the show. I'm glad that you downloaded it and that you're listening. And if you have any thoughts about it, please hit, uh, send me a message on Instagram and let me know what you think. If you like it, please share it. Please uh, subscribe. Please leave a rating. I actually wanted to start today's show by reading a rating that I just noticed. Um, came across it was left it was left a little over a week ago but I just saw it today and it was so kind so I thought I'd I thought I'd read it because these sort of things if nothing else make you feel really good um, the, the podcast does uh, take a little bit of work <laughs> um, it, for those of you who have created um, podcasts and other types of content of this nature you realize the amount of time that it takes and it doesn't seem like it should take a lot of time but it does so uh, this poster whose name, uh, whose user, uh, he, he calls himself D-O-C-J-S-C, Doc uh, J-S-C, he says, Adam is a pioneer of sorts. Back in 2009, he started talking about basketball cards in podcast form. While it might not seem that long ago, back in 2016, a lot has changed within the hobby. Uh, he took some time off from recording, but still, uh, but still active in the community. Adam made his triumphant return to the podcast a couple months ago. Community needed him to come back, and I'm glad he was able. Uh, he was finally convinced to make his return. To no, this is not Michael Jordan. I'm referring to it's Adam, the real 27 guy. Welcome back, which has got to be the nicest thing that anybody's ever said. Yeah, I did start back in 2016, um, and uh, went for about a, a year. I think those old episodes are all still available. If you want to go back and listen to them, it's fun to go back and listen to them. Actually, I did everything from talking about. Um, manipulation and uh, you know talking about the consigners like I did recently to uh, previewing products and talking about ways that I thought the NBA could fix itself all sorts of other things and so if you want to go back and listen to any of those episodes those are still there go back and grab them um, I one one that I think is fun is I did a podcast on 20 15 16 flawless and I talked about one of the cards in that product being uh, one of the most exciting cards of the product, and I was able to acquire that card about six months ago. <laughs> so uh, that's, you know, four years after the product orig originally came out. So it's kind of fun to look back at that. And, um, you know, for better or worse, I tell you guys what I actually think. So, um, so yeah, anyway, thank you. Thank you for leaving that. That was awesome. And if any of the other, any of the rest of you want to leave a comment, I always appreciate that. Okay. Today's agenda really just got two things that I want to talk to you guys about. The first thing is something that we need to be reminded on. Uh, and I want to take a look at it in a different way than maybe has been looked at it before and, and, and address it in, in a direction that's different. Um, the idea is that I believe that eBay is using is being used more than ever to drive narratives rather than to actually sell cards. Cards are still being sold there, but people are using it for more marketing purposes um, and to drive narratives than they have in the past. This is obviously problematic for a lot of reasons, and I want to talk about that. The other thing that I want to do is I've got a really cool Beckett Bites for you. I'm going to review the August 1998 basketball Beckett, and I think there's a lot of interesting pieces of information in there that I want to share with you. Okay, so let's start. Um, let's start on this idea that eBay is being used to be to drive narrative or and for marketing purposes rather than to actually sell cards. Let me start out by saying this, and something that I said repeatedly on this podcast, and people probably roll their eyes, but this is important. I've been in the hobby for thirty something years, 31, 32 years, thirty one years, and in that time. Even today, even though I've studied it and done all these different things, I believe that determining value is very hard. I realize that there are people selling you software and other things out there to try to determine value. I don't believe in those. Um, I don't believe in those things, and I don't believe that it's as easy as just looking at completed listings. Determining value is really hard. Determining which data to listen to is really difficult. Knowing who to trust is very difficult. I don't mean to be all doom and gloom here. I'm still actively buying cards and love buying cards. And 
building my collection constantly, but figuring out what stuff is worth is maybe more difficult today than it has ever been. And I want to give you a couple of examples as to why. Okay, so the, um, the I want to tell you a couple of stories. Okay, first story, I'm going to leave the cards out of this because I don't want my podcast to negatively or positively impact values of cards. So I'm going to tell you about a couple things. So there is a, um, a chat on Instagram that a, that a bunch of us uh, MJ collectors have. And one of the guys who's on there was pretty open and honest recently and talked about how he has listed a specific card. Um, I believe it's four separate times. And each time he's listed it, it has sold. Um, and I believe sometimes it's been at open auction and sometimes it's actually been through buy it now. Each time it has sold, the person who has won the auction or submitted a best offer and won it has then responded to him and said, oh, I actually don't need this. And they always have a different excuse. It's, oh, I didn't realize that this was uh, that this was this instead of that. Oh, I thought that this was gem mint. Oh, I thought they're, the pe- these people aren't even taking possession of the card. They're not even paying for it. They're winning it and then they're not paying for it. And the reason that they're doing this, and this isn't always the case when people when people don't pay for things, but it is a lot of the times, people are trying to create perception of value out in the market. And if and they realize that that other um, collectors look at completed listings as their main source of value. You know, back in the 1990s, it was easy to look at a Beckett and to try to derive what a card was worth, what the value of a card was from that magazine. Cards are very different today. There's so many more of them, and they're so, and, and for the most part, they're so much rarer. There's so many variables that a price guide doesn't operate the same way that it used to. Um, but now people just look at completed listings. I remember when I started looking at completed listings in the late 90s and using that as more of a, a way to to value cards. And I and it was funny because for years people didn't even know that completed listings existed on eBay. Right? I would I would go into my local card store. This is before the days of smartphones. I'd go into my card store, I'd see some things that were for sale on their weekly auction. And I would go back home and say, okay, let's, let's find out what these are worth. I'd look at the completed listings. I'd come back and I'd figure out whether that was something that I wanted to bid on or not. And I was able to do really well flipping cards using that, using that idea because some of those cards weren't listed in the Beckett and it became easier to figure out what rare values were through looking at completed listings. But now those same completed listings that everybody uses to figure out values, some of them are real and some of them aren't. And figuring that out is not as simple as people would like you to believe. People say, well, if you just look at the bidding history and if you see that that all the bidders have high feedback, then the listing, then the bidding looks like it's probably okay and that's that's probably fine. That's not true. Okay, plenty of high um, feedback users have bid on things to inflate the value to the market. Um, People aren't just bidding on their own cards to do this. People are bidding on other people's cards. And uh, and we'll, we'll get back into this in a second, but, but back to the example of the gentleman that I told you about. He became frustrated because he didn't actually know how to sell the card. He had listed it four times. Uh, it's a high dollar card, and he couldn't get it to sell. You can imagine this frustration, right? He just kept listing it and it kept selling, but the guy, but but nobody would, but the person who was winning it, the same guy won it twice, by the way. Um, he, they, the, the people who won it weren't willing to pay, and and so what this what this person did, who owned this card, is he eventually listed it on Instagram and he said, hey, he was really honest. I thought it was cool. He, he he listed on Instagram. He said, I've listed this on eBay three or four different times. The card has not been paid for. I'm gonna sell it here instead. And he had somebody come to him and he was able to avoid the fees and everything and he was able to sell directly. And our community is close enough in a lot of ways where that ends up being the way to do it. Um, in this case, I believe that he was not intentionally using eBay to create anything. I don't think he was doing anything wrong at all. I think he was more a victim of other people's trying to do that. 
But it's hard to tell sometimes if somebody's listing something and they're the ones who are manipulating it and that's why they have to keep relisting it or if it's somebody else. And unless you have really good information, you're probably not going to be able to tell. So the, the things that I think we learn from this are people shill their own cards, people shill others' cards. I had some stuff that I listed with Probstein a few months ago and there was one lot specifically where um, it was, it was, and it, the, the cards ended in the middle of, or it was January 23rd or January 24th. And, um, there were a couple of Kobe's that I sold in there and it was sad to, to, to find out that the only two cards that were paid, paid for out of the, there were like eight different cards that sold in the hundreds of dollars. The only two that were paid for were the Kobe's. The other six were all not paid for. That for me was by far and the way the highest number that hadn't ever sold. Traditionally, my cards have sold that I've sold on um, using the consigners have been paid for 99% of the time, 98 and a half, 99, 99 and a half percent of the time. Um, I've gone, I've, I've submitted entire batches of hundreds of cards before and not had a single one go unpaid. And the way that they let you know if something's been unpaid, you know if it doesn't, if it doesn't get paid, it's not like a, a mystery to you or anything. Um, so what I'm saying is, I think that this is happening more often, right? So um, people are shilling their cards, people are shilling other people's cards, and they're doing it more often than ever. It's more rampant than ever. Um, but it's not as easy to tell as ever. And we'll talk, we'll talk about that here in a second. Another thing that I want to mention here is an idea that um, I don't know if I created the, the name for this. I referred to it as reverse shilling, where someone goes in with a very low feedback and makes it look from the very in beginning of the auction as though it's being manipulated. They throw in bids early. They delete bids. Um, they talk about this on the forums. They mention it on Instagram, and what they try to do is they try to drive away people who are actually bidding because people are scared of being shill bid. And so if you see something, you're like, oh, that's shill bidding, I'm not going to bid. It's kind of a tricky way. It's a tricky sort of reverse type of manipulation. I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's super common, but um, I, I, do think, I do think that it happens from time to time. Um, I think... From a macro perspective, um, I think that this is um, very, very problematic because we don't know how to value our cards. We don't have a source of truth. We don't have a source that's close to true. And we have some things being manipulated so much that you really just don't have any idea what it's worth. Again, I'm not here to be all doom and gloomy. I'm just pointing out that I think that we've got to be very careful. Um, eBay isn't ideal for establishing value. eBay is for selling your cards and hoping that people will actually pay for them. But it is no longer the ideal way to establish value. What this makes me think of is that there are platforms that um, that can do a better job of this than eBay. eBay is really like let go of the reins on people not paying for items and on new accounts being created that are then allowed to go and bid on whatever they want to. And it's basically led to the, the whole um, integrity of the site being com compromised. Um, and, and again, we're using that to establish value. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. I think platforms that require payment at a purchase um, and make returns more difficult um, are going to see uh, an increase in popularity. And uh, this is, you know, when people talk about StockX and things like that, where, um, you know, where it's more difficult to just say, oh, I just, I won this, but then I'm not going to pay for it. On eBay, it's, it's super easy. And so I'm not saying that eBay is going to be dead as a company, but I'm saying that for, for the card community, it does feel like it's becoming less and less useful. And, and they need to make some pretty serious changes. And if they don't, it's going to be hard for them, I think, to, to continue to compete with some of the other entities that are out there. 
The problem with that, of course, is that not every card is graded and not every card is easy to compare with another. Cards aren't like shoes. Cards aren't like um, electronics. Cards come with different types of centering and corners and variables that make them unique to be listed. And in that way, eBay is actually extremely helpful. Um, but in the case of um, but in the case of actually getting paid and, and representing what something is actually selling for, eBay is not as helpful as those other things. I want to mention one other um, thing that I saw recently that that reminded me of this idea that eBay is being used to create narrative and being used for uh, negative, nefarious uh, type reasons. And that is something that you've probably seen um, talked about on the forums and on Instagram in the last couple days. There are a couple of higher feedback accounts that have been used to dramatically, artificially inflate value on some, some cards. And um, the same two accounts have been shown over and over again to be placing these really strange, really high bids. What's strange to this to me about this is that these bids have been, in some cases, so outrageous that it's pretty obvious that they're not real. And you know, this idea of a reverse shill actually kind of comes into my mind because Nobody who's smart, who's, and most people who are spending thousands of dollars on cards are actually pretty smart people. Nobody who's really smart falls for this stuff. It's not driving a narrative that's positive for those cards. It's just people roll their eyes and they go, what are, what are these dorks doing? What are these guys doing? They're not inflating the market. They're, make, they're making themselves look stupid. And um, you know, if we find out who those accounts are, obviously, I think most of us will just block those people and move on. Um, I think I can't really tell what's going on there because you know we as a community are quick to say well this is obviously bad and it is it's definitely bad the idea of manipulating these auctions is very bad but is there a chance that they're actually artificially trying to hold them down because people know immediately that they're not real I don't know I do know that the premise of what they're doing to a less extreme measure is very effective if you have two people place bids on something then and they both have high feedback then it looks it appears to the world that those bids are real and if you do that in smaller increments and are smarter about it and then talk about these things on forums and then talk about these things on instagram you do have a way to artificially inflate values as I talk about that, and as you and as you and you are probably a good normal human who doesn't do these types of things, I hope you are. And if you aren't, by the way, a good normal human who 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 who, who you know tries to do right things and tries to be honest and good in, in their dealings with their fellow man, I would encourage you to do those things. Do be good. Do be kind. Life's too short to be a jerk and to be unfair and lying and de deceptive. Um, but assuming that you are somebody who's good and who's listening to these things, you may be thinking, gosh, I didn't think about some of these things before. Or, man, I didn't realize that completed listings were potentially so fraught with, you know, deceptive behavior. You know, I do think it's important that you know about those things. And I think it's important to watch out for them and to be careful. I also think this isn't all doom and gloom. This isn't a moment where you say, oh, I need to stop collecting cards. What this is, is a moment to recognize that you have to be vigilant in understanding value and you have to do more than just hit the completed listings radio button and just go see what's going on over there. This is a moment where you need to continue to be educated and to think about why cards increase in value and to think about why they increase or decrease as much as they do. It's important to realize, and people talk about the tulip bulbs, it's important to realize that there has to be somebody who really wants that card for it to be worth something. And it's important to realize that there are people out there who would like to, again, use eBay and other means to create narrative, and then they go sell the cards individually. Um, you know, directly to, to the end users without using a platform, using 
without using a selling platform, you know, maybe using a, an Instagram or a Facebook or something like that. Be aware that that's happening. Be cautious. And again, if you're somebody who has, who has tried to use, you know, deceptive measures in, um, excuse me, on eBay to try to get others to believe that your cards are worth more, if you've tried to use it as a marketing platform, that is not what that site was designed to do. Do not do it. That is evil. That is bad. That is wrong. Don't do it anymore. And uh, do things the right way. Um, again, life's too short to to do that sort of thing. So, um, I think one of the one of the roads that I was kind of going down there that I didn't that I didn't really get to the end of was that unlike some types of assets, cards are so unique. And so individual, I look at my collection, for example, the majority of the cards that I collect and that I own are really like one-off type cards, numbered low or are unique for some reason, you know, serial numbered cards or, you know, lot, there's lots of different things that I like, but very few of what I have have a lot of comps out there. If I look at my top 100 cards, I have maybe... I have one card that seems like it has really good comps out there and everything else is, are like very unique and individual and that's how I like to collect. Not a lot of people are like that though. There are a lot of people who are, who collect things that are more, um, you know, that there are more of and that they're easier comps. Those types of things especially are, are um, easy to be manipulated. I didn't used to think this. I used to think that it was easy, that it would be easier to manipulate something that was a real one-off. I don't think that's true anymore. I think cards that sell once a week seem to be pretty easy to manipulate at this point. Um, and so, um, yeah, be, be mindful of that. Be mindful that there are different kinds of assets. So the, the point that this takes me to now is the idea that auction houses are good and that, that this might be a reason why they're being more used. I would guess that auction houses are less likely and listen to my whole take on auction houses before you before you judge it because i have both positives and negatives to share here i would guess that auction houses are less likely to have non-paying bidders um, and i would guess that auction houses are used less often to create narrative but i think that they still are i think that people are still using auction houses to try to manipulate values the question that i have for the auction houses is, and I don't think that it's possible to guarantee you get a straight answer on this, I wonder what they do when they have somebody who who bids and then doesn't pay. Now, if you've ever engaged with an auction house, you know that the majority of them ask for references and they don't allow you to bid. They, it's not like eBay, you can't just sign up in two seconds. You have to provide references, and you know, in some cases, you have to give them credit card information and, and other things, um, and they need to know who you are beforehand. I've signed up for, I think, basically all of the auction houses, and and when I've done that, they've asked for some of those pieces of information, and it kind of gives you this reassurance, like, okay, cool. There's there's some level of like a background check here, not a regular background check that you would see for a company, but a is this guy a real guy in the hobby type background check. I would assume that that is helpful to them. The question that I have is when somebody wins an item and doesn't pay for it, um, do they, what does the auction house do then? Because if the auction house just relists the item, I mean, let's say an item sells for $10,000. The auction, the auctioneer, the auction house has a chance to make, in most cases, about a 20% buyer's premium on that. So they should make about 2,000 bucks. For $2,000, are they going and really getting after the buyer? Are they, if the buyer just says, hey, you know, I provided you this phony information, you didn't really check up on it, you don't even really know who I am. What is that? What are they gonna do then to the, to the seller? Are they gonna assume that the seller was connected with the buyer? They can't really, right? Because as we talked about already, People shill their items and they shill items of other people's. You shill, you shill an item of another person's because you want it, you want your item to retain value. 
In some cases, you see people list items directly after another one has been sold, and they use that previous one as a comp, right? And then in a lot of cases, that works. People then will bid on it or will buy an item based on what the last one sold for. So it's, it's a strategy that works, but again, it's a strategy that is evil and is wrong. I can't point to you to, to exactly the, the places in the law where something like this is illegal, but I have to imagine that you know, intentionally deceiving people to believe that something is selling for X price when it is not, I have to imagine there's something out there that talks about that being illegal. Um, whether it's legal or illegal, though, it is just simply wrong. Right? You can't just use the law as your moral code. I think if you do, you get into a lot of trouble. But um, Yeah, let's keep going. So auction houses are, are good, but there's reason, I think, still to be wary. Um, I don't think that it's in their best interest to, you know, to um, report um, items that haven't been paid for. I think that that does them no good. And there's no like book out there that says this is what auction house have auction houses have to live by. Certainly it's in their best benefit to let the public or and, and the collectors know that you know that that cards or the the items have been paid for and and to let them know what they go for, but it's not in the, their benefit to let us know when things haven't been paid for. Again, I think some people are going to take this as like a doom and gloom episode and I don't want it to come across that way. That's not what I'm suggesting. What I am suggesting is that you have to be really smart. Really, really smart. You've gotta be well informed and you've gotta know why your cards are worth what they're worth. When you hear real offers from people directly, that is a good thing, especially when they're people who you trust. When you learn of people who you think you can trust and you know they have they they give you numbers that's meaningful um, but even then people people give you information to try to benefit their own cards most of the time that people see inflation on something or they see you know real manipulation on something that they own they won't come out and talk about it and the reason is simple right People don't want to report manipulation when that manipulation benefits them. It's sad, but it's true. So, again, I'm not all doom and gloom. I still am buying cards like a crazy man. But I do feel like it's a really important moment in the history of the hobby for people who are still trying to figure things out to know you've got to be careful and you've got to be thoughtful about what things are actually worth and um, and when people say, people used to say, you know, and they still do, an item's worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. And we believed for a long time that eBay completed listings was the most accurate way to tell that. I don't think that's true anymore. And I think that we as a community have to figure out better ways to determine value. And we as collectors and people who are, who are ingrained in the hobby and it's an important part of our life, we have to be willing to call it out when we see it. And so I've been impressed this last couple days as I've seen other people do it and glad to sort of add my, my voice to the, the list of others who, um, who feel this way. Um, the last thing that I'll say that I don't think I've really mentioned on this before I get to the Beckett Bites is that I don't think that people who are artificially inflating cards are... are um, usually total morons. Um, I think that, that they're smart enough to do things slowly and in a way that's difficult to detect. Um, when you see giant jumps, those are obvious to cut to, and you see you see really obviously looking you know, weird bidding activity. Those are more identifiable. People who are smart who are artificially you know manipulating the market, those people, I think are, are are usually smart enough to do to do it in a way that's difficult to detect. I think that artificial and um, you know manip manipulation sometimes leads to real value gains too, which makes this whole thing just so confusing. Um, I think we've seen a lot of different areas of our of our hobby that have been artificially inflated, and then later those values became real and even went way higher than they were artificially inflated to. Figuring these things out is difficult. That's where I started and that's probably where I'll end on this because 
Um, again, 30 plus years, I don't know how to tell you exactly what a card's worth. And I don't think that anybody really does. Um, but do your best to find out, to figure out who you can trust. And, uh, and to figure out how, you know, how you can determine what, what cards are worth. And then, and then just do a lot of research. That's my best suggestion. All right, let's move to Beckett Bites. I'm excited for this one because this this uh, issue has a ton in it that seems really cool. Again, this is the August 1998. I think this is my third straight 1998 Beckett that I've done for Beckett Bites. I've got about 10 different pages that I've highlighted with things on it that I want to um, that I want to hit. Actually, the inside cover and the outside cover. Um, sorry, the, the 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 cover on the front and on the back have ads for non-NBA licensed cards. And on the front um, is one of the sets that I actually really liked opening, which is the uh, Collector's Edge set from 1998. It uh, advertises for Kobe Bryant, uh, autographs and memorable moments, game ball cards. And um, it mentions you know a lot of the big stars of the of the, that that draft that '98 draft as well as guys like Pippen, Kobe, Tracy McGrady, Stephon Marbury, and Tim Thomas. Uh, that was kind of a cool product. You know, a lot of people look back and they're like, "Oh, that's crap. That's crap." They just discount it. But I really liked it. I thought that it was fun because you got you had rare inserts, you had game used stuff, you had autographs. What you have is uh, NBA jerseys that have been you know. Um, edited so you can't tell. Although this Lakers jersey that Kobe's in is pretty clearly a Lakers jersey on the ad. I have to imagine that they got some flack for making this ad the way they did. All right, let's turn a couple of pages here and get to the next note. Oh, this is a good one, guys. This is a really good one. So you guys are going to like this one. On page six, there's a story called Precious Pull. And uh, this is what the story, I'm just going to read you the whole story because it actually, um, it, it's, it's pretty cool. Okay. So it says, um, ever get one of those streaks where it feels like every pick's going to cough up something good? Well, you might want to compare notes with Gretchen Toda, a collector who enjoys, who enjoyed one of the biggest pulls we have ever heard of. So check this out. Toda of uh, New York recently pulled the 1997-98 Precious Metal Precious Metal Gems Set Redemption card number 46. Okay, so you're probably saying, okay, what's that? What's the Precious Metal Gems Redemption number 46? Well, number 46 of 50. Uh, she's my best basketball customer, so I couldn't be happier for her, said Tony Perry owner of Perry's Sports Cards, where Tota pulled the card. She was shocked when I told her what it was worth, he says, adding it was the most valuable card he had ever seen pulled in his 29 years of collecting. The pull even landed Tota on the front page of the sports section in the local paper, prompting another area collector to offer $4,000 for the card. Tota passed, choosing instead to send the card in for a redemption. As if that's not, not enough, Tota also recently pulled a pair of 1997-98 Jambalaya cards from a single box, as well as a voucher for a John Stockton autograph from 97-98 SP Authentic. That Stockton autograph was never redeemed, by the way. Penny Hardaway uh, autograph photos were given in place of the Stockton autograph. <coughs> Excuse me. Hoping to cash in on Tota's lucky streak, Perry took her with him to purchase a few lotter lottery tickets. Unfortunately, the results weren't quite so successful. Da, 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 da. Okay, so this is a cool article for me to see because one of my best cards, in fact, a card that I think most people think is my best card, is the 1997 Precious Metal Gems uh, uh, Metal Universe Championship Michael Jordan 48 of 50. Um, it's a BGS 9. And most of the cards from that set aren't as nice a condition. It's it's probably the nicest condition one that exists. Um, and the reason that it's so nice is because it didn't actually come directly out of a pack. It was one of the final five sets. Uh, it's card number 48 of 50. And so it was redeemed and then delivered directly to 
you know, whoever the person was who pulled that lucky card, hear of somebody else doing this and happen to see this being reported back in 1998 within a couple of months of the issuance of the set is super cool. And hearing that somebody else was willing to pay $4,000 for it at the time is also really neat because it, it kind of, um, you know, lets you know that even at this time in 1998, these really were worth a lot of money. Obviously, they're worth far more than that now. Um, and uh, and anyway, that's a cool story from, from, this, from this Beckett. All right, the next thing that you guys are gonna like is there's actually two different product previews in, in the, this issue that are really interesting. The first is that same set, 97-98 Metal Universe Championship. And uh, so what they do is they have a box breakdown of the set. And so in the set you got, or in the, or in the, in the box, they got 24 packs, eight cards per pack, 186 total cards in the box. They completed the set, got 86 extras and six inserts. An all millennium team of Carl Malone, Kobe Bryant, Dennis Rodman, and Juwan Howard. You got zero precious metal gems, zero championship galaxies, future champions. They got one of Tim Duncan and one of Keith Van Horn. No trophy cases that were one in 96. No hardware, no autograph, and no ultimate gems, which are the those five sets that we talked about that that lady found in the la, in the the last thing that I read. And here was their analysis. Analysis: Opening this box left us wondering why Fleer didn't just do Metal Universe Series Two instead of trying to pawn this off as a new product. Admittedly, this the design is less cheesy than Series One, and we had no trouble completing a set, but but the higher pack price than Metal Universe and the lack of any worthwhile pulls made this a mediocre purchase at best. Two stars out of five value for the money. How's that? Pretty interesting, right? Not every box was great, even back then. And uh, yeah, I guess if you don't hit a precious metal gems out of, out of uh, metal, even today, you're probably not going to do very well out of those boxes. All right, on that very same page, believe it or not, was the box breakdown for the 1997-98 uh, Skybox EX2001, which uh, reported they, they received 24 packs, two cards per pack, but they only received 45 cards in the box. Uh, that means that three of the packs, they only received one card. They received 55% of the base set, 44 of 80, one extra, and three inserts, two Stardate 2001s, and a Gravity Denied Michael Jordan, which is obviously the big card. What that also means is that they didn't get any of the any of the real big cards that they could have gotten. They didn't get a Jambalaya. They didn't even get an Autographics or a Century Club Autographics. They didn't get any essential credentials. So the analysis on this is $100 plus boxes aren't that unusual these days. $100 plus boxes that del deliver good value are. If you're into high dollar packs, chances are you wouldn't be too upset with this one. The design is sharp and the rookies have a little juice. We didn't get a Duncan, but did get most of the other key rookies. The Jordan Gravity Denied was a nice treat as well. The collation was near perfect, which is critical at this price point. All in all, a fun box to bust. Value for the money, three out of five stars. Awesome. Two of the best products of the 1990s and they were given mediocre type uh, reviews. All right. Um, there is, uh, on the next page, page 10, there is a conversation that I think is relative to what this episode was about. The idea that price guides, um, had to, unfortunately, um, the, the, the Beckett had a hard time keeping up with being able to price things the right way because not so much because it was hard to tell what things were worth, but because there were so many different types of one-offs. So somebody asked the question, I realize the pricing some of the new super short printed cards must pose one of your biggest challenges. Still you report individual sales on Flare Masterpiece and other one of ones. How about some input on the 97-98 Stadium Club printer's plates? This is when plates were brand new and plates were actually really popular when they first came out. I know it's hard to believe in 2020, but in 1997 and 98, it was a big deal. He says, I have a Tracy McGrady yellow front and I have no idea how to gauge its value. And the reply says, indeed, with so many sets now, including cards that are produced in quantities, 10, in quantities of 10 or less, it's almost impossible to provide accurate pricing because so few cards trade hands. After all, people who find them expect a certain return based on the scarcity of the card. The problem is in finding some someone who's able and willing to pay that kind of pay for that kind of card. 
we're often left with scant information. We try to provide confirmed prices on tough cards such as stadium club printers plates. Da, 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 da. And what's interesting about this is even back in 1997 and 98, people were smart enough to understand that Beckett's price guide um, created narratives around what, what cards were worth. And, and getting accurate pricing data um, could be um, skewed by what people wanted cards to be worth. Uh, just like it is today. So if in 1997 and 98, somebody who was considered reputable said to Beckett, yes, I sold this card for $4,000, but they really still held, held the card and the best offer that they'd gotten on it was $2,000. The fact that that would be then printed in Beckett could dramatically influence value, right? Determining value is hard. I will come back to that over and over and over again because it's hard to know who to trust. It's hard to determine what uh, variables are most important and in general you don't know what something's worth until you get the chance to sell it. Uh, I would I would suggest that although finding comps is interesting and, and um, useful that just following what other people are paying is also not super smart. Right In this hobby I feel like in a lot of cases you have to be willing to be the first mover. Some people are trying to play the follow the leader game my suggestion is to buy what you like, which enables you to be your own leader, right? So anyway, just some advice by Adam there. Okay, uh, this next part on page 11 I thought was interesting, and I've heard people talk about this, um, and I uh, thought that you guys might like it. It's The heading is Peel Variations? Question mark. I recently bought some packs of 1997-98 Finest 2 and realized Tops had changed the style of protective coating on the card fronts. But as I was looking through the cards, I realized that some still had the series one peel instead. Are there any premiums for any of these cards or are they considered inserts? Okay, by Adam Dris Driscoll um, via Beckett Online. This, the, the writer or the Beckett says, there was a new peel applied to most of the series two finest cards, which, um, sorry. Uh, which uses vertical lines instead of um, diagonal lettering. This was uh, created to be less visually obst obstructive than the previous peel style. We've heard a number of cases of the old style being applied to Series 2 cards, but to date no one seems interested in paying a premium for these variations. Good thing, too, because anyone dumb enough to pay a premium for a peel variation deserves to be tortured with Los Angeles Clippers season tickets. It's kind of strange for, for Beckett to go out on, on a limb like that. We're collecting cardboard, and various variations of cardboard can be uh, worth significantly more or less money. And, um, you know, the fact that you might have a far fewer of a certain kind of peel in 97, 98, Finest Series 2 could be interesting, actually. Um, and uh, it's, it's probably one of those things that, it's one of those things that may be interesting to some of you and may not be. Um, but different variations are, are, are worth watching. So I thought that was kind of cool. All right. Now this article I think is particularly interesting. Some of you may know that SPX has this interesting past where yeah, most, most cards from the era had two years associated with them, a season, if you will. So 97, 98 Flair Metal. You know, 96 or 86, 87 Fleer basketball. But SPX has this weird history where it had cards from 1996 that were listed in the Beckett as 1996 SPX, not 96, 97, not 95, 96, just 1996 SPX. And then it had 1997 SPX. And then it had 97, 98 SPX. So there were actually two sets of SPX, one from 1997 and one from 1997, 98. Kind of weird, right? Okay. So this uh, article explains uh, why that's interesting and why that is. It's uh, the, the writer, Andy Zen, writes, with 1987-88 SPX coming out before the season is over, does this mean the cards of Tim Duncan, Keith Van Horn, and other members of the 97 draft class would be considered rookies for the first time? On the other hand, should the cards of Duncan, Mercer, and others that are featured in the postseason issues, such as Topps Chrome and Skybox EX, be considered rookies? So Andy Zinn says via Beckett Online. This actually brings up a lot of questions, and we'll talk about them here in a second, but let's hear what Beckett has to say first. It says, with an earlier release date than ever before, the cards of Duncan and the rest of the, his draft class found in 97-98 SPX set 
are recognized as true rookie cards. Although this might cause some confusion, especially as similar cards in previous SPX sets did not earn the designation, it makes perfect sense for this set. Consider that the set came out in the regular flow of 97-98 releases and that the card backs did not have references to complete statistics for the 97-98 season, which obviously would sig signal a post-season product. Just as importantly, the hobby immediately recognized these as rookie cards, and as always, we reflect what the hobby is doing. And yet, at this point, it's a solid bet that the cards of Duncan and the, and the boys found in Topps Chrome or EX2001 will be considered rookies as well, should they produce, should the products meet the same criteria demonstrated by SPX. This is a wishy-washy answer in my opinion. It basically says, here are the criteria, but as always, we just listen to what the hobby says. Okay, well, thank you for providing us with very little in this case. I do think there are some things that are interesting though. When they suggest that cards that are coming out in the postseason or after the season aren't rookie cards, it makes me think of today. Now, I realize we're 20-something you know, years past this release, but cards that come out after the season today are regularly thought of as rookie cards. And maybe that's because they're coming out at the same time as a bunch of other cards that are considered as rookie cards. Or, as suggested in this answer, maybe it's just because the hobby views them that way. I don't know for sure. What I do know is that it seems that there was a time where Beckett didn't consider things rookies that weren't produced within the regular season of that given basketball season. And that is interesting. That has dramatically changed. Um, I think it's also interesting because, you know, the Kobe Bryant SPX card, for example, is considered by some people a rookie card. And by some people, it's not considered a rookie card. And it seems as time goes by, it's considered more as a rookie, but it wasn't at the time, for sure. And it wasn't, it didn't have the little RC next to it in the, in the Beckett, which for most of us was kind of the, the signifier. Um, all right, there's lots of things in the price guide that are interesting, um, but I'll just read a, a few more. I'll skip the prices this time and, and jump to what the what's hot section. And then um, and a little blurb that ended up being really um, interesting in, in terms of how it, in, how it impacted the history of basketball cards. Um, in the what's hot sets section, uh, there's 15 sets, and I don't want to go through each of them. But I do want to read the top, the top five. So 97, 98 Skybox Autographics is number five. Number four is 9798 UD Game Jerseys. Number three, 9798 Tom's Chrome. Number two, 9798 Flare Showcase Legacy Collection. And the number one most popular set, hottest set at the time, 9798 Essential Credentials. You have to go all the way to number 13 to get your first mention of Precious Metal Gems. Very interesting. Very interesting. All right. Uh, let's go to page... 58, which is the kid zone section. The kid zone section mentions something that I think is really cool and I didn't know about. Um, there's actually two things on here that I think are neat. One is uh, Karen Hall, 14 years old, asks, I've been thinking about collecting the letters for the 9798 Skybox Autographics Redemption set. Which letter is the tough one to finish the set? Remember, this is at the time of the McDonald's um, Monopoly uh around the same time as McDonald's Monopoly contest where you could collect certain things, but you would always have a hard time collecting the one last thing that you needed. So it turns out the S, K, B, O, and X are quite plentiful in this series. If you happen to find a Y card somewhere, that one you want to pick up, uh, but be prepared to pay a steep price if you don't pull it from a pack since it's good when redeemed with the other five letters for a complete set of autographics. You know demand is going to be uh, high for that tough card. Of course, if you don't find the Y, you're not completely shut out. The collector who submits the most redemption cards of the second chance draw will win a complete autographic set as well. See the back of the card for details. What's interesting about that is there were two complete 9788 Skybox autographic sets get given out. I didn't know that. And uh, that's why it's kind of cool to look back at old Beckett's. This next little article um, is, is a, um, in the ink trail section of guys who are looking for autographs and hits close to home, uh, as, you'll, uh, as you'll understand after I read this. 
The guy said his name's Chris. Chris says I go to I go to as many New New Jersey Nets games as I can because well I'm an obsessed autograph collector. I get to the games very early and leave very late to get as many autographs as possible. Although I usually go to the games against lower tier teams because they're easier to get tickets for, I happened to score for for the March 6th game against the Utah Jazz. I didn't expect much luck, but this was to be my day. I was one of six kids out front when Carl Malone walked in. I called him over and he gladly signed my Spalding basketball with a silver marker. It was beautiful and very legible. It gets better. After the game, I saw him again. While he was signing for other fans, I asked him for his wristbands. He gave them to me. Exclamation mark. I can't wait to get tickets to the next Jazz Nets game next season. Chris. Yeah, Carl Malone was one of the best signers ever, and his autograph is gorgeous. And he gets a lot of flack for a lot of things, but man, he I met Carl a couple times when I was younger, and he just could not have been kinder. The other thing that's interesting in this uh, issue is... They, Beckett did the, their first 1998 National Awards, and it was done. The article is by Tracy Hackler, who's well known in the community or in the in the hobby today. Still, um, the individual award for uh, insert of the year in 97-98, right? One of the greatest insert years of all time. The individual award that was given at the time was to Upper Decks 1997-98 game jersey cards. Upper Deck's wildly successful, uh, splendid chase concept came to hoops for the first time and quickly established itself as the company's best effort, best ever. What it lacked in timing, game jerseys and other sports have been around for two years, it more than made up for with Jordan. MJ's MJ UD's meal ticket has had had two versions of his all-star jersey inserted, including a signed numbered 23 beauty that books for $8,000. Wish we could go back on time on that one. Card of the year was the Michael Jordan autograph jersey at a 97-98 upper deck. Innovation of the year was 97-98 upper deck game jerseys. Very interesting. And the buzz card of the year was the 96-97 Topps Chrome Kobe Bryant rookie card. The last thing that I'll share with you from this uh, issue of Beckett is um, is an interesting one. And if you've lasted this long in this episode, hopefully you enjoy this. Um, I don't know how much I'm going to read of this, but the very last piece, tucked at the very end of the Beckett, is a an article that I had never read. Um, and uh, it is called Do the Wrong Thing. And it's about Ken Golden's scoreboard, uh, their apparent unwillingness to honor redemptions, and how that left collectors feeling shortchanged by Al Muir. It's a whole page, but basically the idea behind this is that scoreboard uh, did the wrong thing. Um, I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read bits and pieces of it to you um, that I think are interesting. But I would suggest going back and reading the whole thing. Uh, Ken, Ken Golden is, is an important uh, name in the hobby today. He runs Golden Auctions, um, which is one of the leaders in high-end uh, auction uh, or memorabilia, sports memorabilia and cards. Um, but he has uh, he has some experience. He's had some things that had happened in the past that I think he'd obviously love to have you know, not talked about. But I didn't pick this uh, issue up intending to talk about it, but I, I think that you know it's here and, and it's worth looking back at. So... Uh, let's read a little bit of the article. Um, it wasn't as attractive as the other cards in the box. Just a photo of a bunch of balls and other memorabilia laid out on an orange background. But pulling it was, as James Shulks recalls, one of the biggest thrills of my collecting life. The find from a pack of 96 scoreboard basketball autograph memorabilia was a redemption card. Good friend Alan Iverson autographed photo. As a collector of the 76er guard, Shulks prompted, promptly mailed the card to scoreboard uh, and, select, and settled in, in to wait four to six weeks for delivery. Almost a year later, he's still waiting. And from the sounds of things, he can just about forget looking at his mailbox for anything with a Cherry Hill, New Jersey postmark. The May announcement by scoreboard that it would be liquidating its remaining assets to pay off a long list of creditors has left more than a few in the hobby shaking their heads in disgust and wondering what would become of their unfulfilled redemption cards. 
The company currently operating under Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection planned an auction for late June. Reportedly included among scoreboard's assets were the autographed balls, photos, cards, and other memorabilia items promised via the exchange cards. To collectors such as Shulks, who had bought the company's redemption-laden product in good faith. Other publications, including some uh, issued under the banner, have mourned the end of scoreboard as a tragic loss to the hobby, the unfortunate passing of a long-serving contributor. What a crock. That's not what I said. That's what the writer says. This is not a case of simple misunderstanding. This is not a case of a few mistakes that snowballed and caught some well-intentioned individuals unprepared. Once scoreboard began its final fatal turn, did it really intend to honor all those redemption cards, which basically drove the company's numerous lower echelon products the past few years? Without being inside the company, I can't prove what my gut is telling me. But if scoreboard officials would pick up their phones, I'd ask, did you honestly attempt to redeem the cards sent in this year by James Shulks and thousands of other collectors? Or did you purposefully delay those redemptions Realizing you had little else to use as collateral with the inevitable end of your company fast approaching. That's what wronged collector Shulks is trying to find out. He's waged a one-man battle against Scoreboard for his past for the past year of his internet website on his internet website. I wanted to let collectors know the truth and let these companies know they weren't going to get away with it, Shulks said. Not only has he spent a considerable amount of time in his own money tracking down the individual parties, He's launched a petition asking the courts to place collectors at the top of their list of creditors. Currently, that group is, is at the bottom with little chance of gaining any sort of remuneration when the holdings are divvied up. Ultimately, I'd like to stop the auction so that collectors uh, get, so the collectors get what, they, what they have coming to them. Scoreboard is selling off material that doesn't belong to them. It's rightfully ours. I have to agree with Mr. Schultz on this. Sadly, that may not be the case. If the court would ever hear Schultz's complaint, it would have to determine if pulling a redemption card constitutes a contract between the company and the cardholder. If it is, and by all boundaries of common sense, it should be, then collectors will get that what's coming to them. As far as I can determine, there isn't any precedent for this sort of thing, and the system can be frustratingly obtuse. Update. As this went to press on June 23rd, the court had yet to receive a decision uh, of the dispersal of items remaining in the redemption houses. There was, however, some good news to pass along to collectors. Fleer Skybox announced an initiative to provide some sort of prize for up to 5,000 frustrated scoreboard hobbyists. If you have a redemption card in hand or proof that you mailed in one, um, such as a postal, postal registration, you're ed- eligible for this generous offer. So Fleer Skybox stepped up and, and helped. What's interesting about that is later Fleer Skybox went through the same type of process and collectors received random uh, random things in the mail rather than the cards that they actually they actually redeemed. I remember I, I sent in a redemption and got something totally different back and the thing that I got back was not worth very much and the thing that I that I redeemed was worth something. So um, Fleer in the end kind of met the same the same end and bankruptcy is a real thing. I understand, um, you know, it's tough from scoreboard's perspective, but the fact that they put out so many of those things and kept pumping out products and then weren't able to deliver and didn't ensure that they were able to deliver to those who they had, in my opinion, set up a contract with by them pulling those out of packs and purchasing them um, is really, really irritating and frustrating. And that happened to me. I had a a ball that I was waiting for. I think it was Juwan Howard, a full-sized autographed basketball back in 1998 that my 15-year-old self was really excited to get. And I didn't get it because uh, scoreboard scoreboard wasn't able to fulfill that. And um, it's a reminder, um, this whole episode maybe is a reminder that that there are lots of good people in this hobby, but there are lots of things that happen that are really unfortunate. There are people who who let greed get the better of them. And um, the thing that I would tell you, again, as somebody who's been in this hobby for a long time, is to be really smart, do your research, and if you feel like you're letting the greedy part of you, kind of the, the, the bad angel or the, the devil on your shoulder sort of, um, rule how you're how you're buying and selling and how you're marketing your cards and how you're trying to take advantage of other people. If you're trying to to 
to you know scheme your way into getting money out of people that's a real person on the other end of that transaction you know that's uh, that's if you're trying through dishonest means to 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 get things then you're doing it wrong and it's not worth it that's my humble opinion and since it's my podcast I get to share that with you guys um, my suggestion is always is to be kind to those people who are around you and to try to make the hobby better, try to make the world better, obviously, try to be kind and good and, uh, and avoid, avoid, avoid the things that are just in your own self-interest. And uh, I, I, would, I would bet you that as you do that, you actually end up happier in the end. That's my experience anyways. All right, on that uh, very preachy <laughs> moment, uh, hope, hope that you guys have a really good week, a really good weekend, and uh, until next time, happy collecting.